Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey there. Hey, you're listening to the Gravity Podcast. It's just Matt and I today. Christy is... In timeout. And her pink headphones. We put her in timeout. No, no she's, not she's in time on out. vacation. Is yes. she on vacation? I can never hey, remember. Okay. Technically, that is time out. I mean, she's spending time mm-hmm. outside of this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. That is true. That is right? true. It's just not a. It's not like a punishment or anything. You thought she discipline. was in trouble. You yeah. thought she, she's not in trouble. Yeah. Get your mind she out of the gutter, trouble. listener. She is trouble. Um, That's true. Yeah. How you doing today, Ben? You're getting ready to move. Uh, getting ready to move. Um, man, it's uh, so I've literally got. I don't know if you can hear the pounding. I have people working on uh, part of our house that we had to repair to sell it, um, but that's all taken care of, but they're working on it right now. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, we're getting ready to move in about about a week from now. So, mm. yeah. Mm. So cool, anyway, man. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's been a little stressful. Um, every time we move, we moved eight years ago into this house. And every time we move, we're like, we're never moving again. This is going to be our, yeah. we're never doing this again. Moving and is we for, always, you know, manage to move again. Crazy. It's crazy. To me. It is. It is crazy. Um, but yeah, we're looking forward to, we're, we're moving into, so realizing we're moving into an older home by far than we have ever moved into. Mm. And people keep, I'm a little intimidated by it because people keep giving, like raising their eyebrows when I say this <laughs> to them. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh yeah. So I've always lived in old homes. And so, but anyway, the home is 111 years old. Oh. As old, it's 111, like Bilbo Baggins was <laughs> at the beginning of uh, The Hobbit. Yeah. Um, but, it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely, you know, all original hardwoods and seems pretty well built. Um, so we're, we're excited. The neighborhood seems really nice. So Yeah, good. It's just here in Indianapolis. I'm not moving away, listener, just in case you were right. alarmed by that. I don't think anybody um, was alarmed. Well, you never know. I've some people are like, "Where are you moving?" They have a look of surprise and alarm in their eyes. Mm. Well, before you move, Ben, we have a pod. We have a podcast episode to introduce. We do. That's why we're here. That's why yeah. we're. That's why we're recording. So. Yeah, we had a little critical race theory chat. Yeah, we love those. Apparently, we do. We love those. Yeah, I think it was a. It was a. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, Robert Chow Romero and Jeff Leo. Uh, joined us to chat about their book, Christianity and Critical Race Theory, A Faithful 
and constructive conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I feel like we had a faithful and constructive conversation with them about their faithful and constructive conversation <laughs> between <laughs> Christian faith and critical race theory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it kind of, uh, Follow up. If you've not listened to our four-part series on critical race theory that we did with, um, oh, his name is escaping me now. Shoot, what's his name? <laughs> Look it up. Uh, the professor from Wheaton, Doctor um, okay. Nathan Cartagena. 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 But um, yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that that would be good to go back and get a flavor for, uh, yeah, how critical race theory helps us read history. And understand uh, history, um, but these guys have um, their book is a little bit more about the conversation between Christian faith and critical race theory, and how to basically allow them to talk to each other and mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, so it was it was good. It really it was, a really good interview. So yeah, we should play it. Hit play on that interview. Hit play on the interview. Yeah, yeah. This um, that's what that's what uh, that's what we're gonna do. Good. I think that's all we that's all we can need to cover today. Yeah. That's it. Roll the right. tape. Roll tape. We'll do it live. Dr. Robert Chow Romero and Dr. Jeff Leo join us today on the Gravity Podcast. Robert is an associate professor in the UCLA Department of Chicana, Chicano, uh, Central American, and Asian American Studies, director of the Brown Church Initiative at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's an attorney and author of the award-winning book, Brown Church. And uh, Jeff is a national director of the Theological Formation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA, an adjunct assistant professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary and co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Jeff and Robert, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Thanks well, so much. Pleasure to be here. Guys, I'm excited. We're talking about uh, a book you've co-authored recently entitled Christianity and Critical Race Theory, A Faithful and Constructive Conversation. Um, I'll post questions that maybe uh, each one of you can answer, for, uh, and if it's fine, sufficient, you don't need to both answer, but I would like to hear from both of you, how did you first encounter or become interested in critical race theory? I first encountered it in a class that I ditched a lot when I was in law school. <laughs> <laughs> So I took a class with Ian Haney Lopez, who's one of the founders of CRT, but when I was in law school, but I wasn't really interested in it yet, but that's how I first encountered it. (laughs) Then once I became a professor at UCLA, um, I began to teach about legal studies, teach legal studies courses to grad students, undergrads, and then um, in order to understand um, the experience of Latinos and African-Americans and Asian-Americans and Native Americans in the U.S. legal system, I needed a framework, a theoretical framework, and CRT um, became one of those frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I learned it through Robert. Uh, I was early in my PhD studies, and I knew that I, I wanted to look for resources outside of uh, Fuller, where I was studying, and Robert became one of those resources. I asked him to put together a reading list for me, and he added a few things to it. 
And I instantly saw these resonances between the theological work that I was doing and the critical race work that Robert is familiar with and was introducing to me. And that took off. Uh, That really became a big part of my own dissertation. And then um, eventually, Robert and I got together and we thought we should write something. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the issues with talking about CRT is that it it uh, in the popular discourse and the nomenclature, it means uh, everything. It can mean anything. It's a cipher that we, you know, can be a book about Ruby Bridges. It could be the fact that I, uh, you're asking me to be empathetic to somebody. <laughs> like it, it means everything. So it means nothing really. And what I hope that you could do, and you sort of summarize CRT uh, with the work of uh, Delgado and others in the beginning. And there's like four basic tenets. So I wonder. Um, if you could just summarize right up front what we're talking about when we are talking about CRT. Well, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the first one, Jeff. I'll let you take sure, your sure, sure, sure. Go for <laughs> it. So, the first one is uh, racism is ordinary. Racism is ordinary. So when when legal scholars looked at the history of, the history of U.S. law, right, vis a vis people of color, they said, oh my gosh, <laughs> racism is just everywhere <laughs> from 1790, whatever, <laughs> to the present. Like mm-hmm. the overwhelming weight of the U.S. legal system many times is to um, just make it so that people of color have less rights and privileges, are treated secondary, secondarily. And that's sort of like not a surprise. That's just like the normal deal. And that when we experience racism in everyday society, that's part of our experience as people of color. Like, it's just, and it's, it shouldn't be surprising. So racism as, as ordinary, which, and Jeff wrote a whole chapter just looking at, at the biblical parallels of that, which I look forward to discussing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I can just breeze through the other three. And the second one is interest convergence or material determinism. If, if the, the shorthand, maybe it's easy to explain, like, the way race works in the United States is nothing's going to happen in the interest of people of color unless there's also an interest in making it happen among white folks. So these interests got to converge. If it's liberation for black bodies or people of color, there's got to be some kind of, there's got to be something in it for the people in power who can make those changes. So that's interest convergence. The, the, The third one is the social construction thesis. This one's relatively pedestrian, we know that race itself is a social construct. We have made it up, right? In, 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 uh, I shouldn't say we, it has been made up by powerful <laughs> someones, right? Yes. Um, and, and, and it has uh, real consequences, but we remind ourselves that it is not what folks have said in the past, something really real, primordial, unchangeable, that kind of stuff. It, it is really something that we imagine ourselves. And then the last one is the voice of voice of color thesis, which basically says that as a Taiwanese American, I think I know something significant about being Taiwanese American that other folks are not going to know. So you don't have to tell me what's best for Taiwanese Americans. I think I know that myself. Mm. And in fact, I should be able to tell you what's best for my community. Mm-hmm. Um, your book sets out to help Christians understand and appropriate the benefits of CRT, but 
many treat CRT as a threat to Christianity. And so help us understand, why do you think CRT is seen as such a threat? Like, what are people afraid of? I think I'll respond by, you know, we talked offline about, like, you want to show your listeners or give examples of how we love better, right? Mm-hmm. And love listens. Love listens, right? And um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that God has, God's put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Right? CRT, in many ways, is a heart's cry from people in the United States, many believers in the United States who have lacked honor in U.S. society throughout the history of, U- of the United States, who are crying out for suffering and when people resist CRT, they are resisting that equal concern that, and, and thereby resisting that equal concern, they create further division. Okay. So um, CRT, it's like a family, right? It's like, okay, if I say, oh gosh, dad, my sibling did this, did this horrible thing to me. And this other sibling did this horrible thing to me. And if I cry out to my, my dad and say that, if my dad says, no, it didn't happen. <laughs> it's not real, you know. What or or what? What your siblings did to you was not that bad. That's a recipe for family dysfunction, right? Yeah. And that's the history of race in the United States. And that's what happens when people just dismiss CRT as a boogeyman because they're failing to give, like they're failing to give honor to the parts that lack it, and they're failing to show equal concern for all. Mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And I, I you know, if, if we just went back to the four kind of early tenets of CRT that I, that we just enumerated, yeah. like just take, for example, the, the, the voice of color thesis, right? Um, you're asking, why is that so uncomfortable for people? Well, I remember when um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was uh, being grilled for uh, her nomination to the Supreme court Um a talk, someone found one of the talks that she had done at Berkeley. And uh, she had said that um, as a Latina, um, she believes that she would have insight that a Latina woman would have about certain cases or decisions that would be beneficial and perhaps more beneficial than perspectives that a white man would have. That was such an incendiary statement for people. It made people feel so uncomfortable because I, I, I think, as I listened to the discourse, how dare someone uh, uh, insinuate that they have special knowledge or particular knowledge or a certain way of thinking about things that would contribute more than someone else. And it's that more than, I, I think there's this um, feeling that if someone can do something better than me, that I that 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 something is now inherently unfair, and um, we have this kind of uh, weird way of thinking about fairness and levelness and flatness that uh, really is threatened and makes people feel uncomfortable. But there's a million things that we could say that CRT asserts that make people feel uncomfortable. But I should say that most of what people are reacting to is probably not CRT to begin with. 
yeah, Jeff, do you want to say more about that? What, what yeah, is, I was yeah, like, what is tell it? me more. Well, I mean, we've alluded to it a little bit already. You know, uh, political strategists have worked hard to front load this um, title CRT with all kinds of nonsense that has nothing to do with the academic kind of discipline or the uh, academic approach that CRT really is. And so there's a deliberate work to make CRT the lightning rod uh, so that when people think what's going on in public schools, they think CRT, and that's that's just not what's happening. Uh, that's yeah. you look at the academic discourse that that's not really what uh, folks are talking about. If you you look at the original works of CRT, they have very little to do with what uh, you'll see on the news. And so th- this reaction, um, our our colleague and dear brother Nathan Cartagena has. Uh, shown us that it's that third sense of the culture wars CRT that uh, really has very little to do with the original CRT or even the derivative CRT and other disciplines. So it's, it's very much a part of the culture wars. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. It is sad. I I'm thinking too, that this is sort of a, um, a well-worn political, political strategy. There's that famously Atwater quote, right. Who was a political strategist for Nixon, who was talking about how, you know, in the late sixties or seventies, you can no longer say the N word. You, know, you couldn't just come out and say the N-word, but you had to use ciphers. Uh, you had to use other phrases that would do the same work. And so he talked about law and order, right? He talked about urban crime, things like this that, mm-hmm. that, are, that seem uh, principled, you know, but really carry with it this package of white supremacy. And it seems like you know, this this has been going on at least for 50 years now, and CRT is the latest iteration of a cipher that doesn't, anti-CRT, doesn't seem to be racist, but but carries white supremacy's water. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, so I'm really glad that you guys are here to help, mm. like, us uh, figure that out uh, and yeah. deal with that. Um, maybe, maybe we could then pivot a bit to, to, to your your book in the in chapter one deals with different approaches in education um, and introduces us to the idea of like you you introduce us to this idea of cultural deficit versus cultural wealth and I'm wondering Jeff if this goes back to what you were describing about voices or if you mean more uh, how does CRT help us navigate these various cultures and experiences as Christians. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to toss to Robert here. This is this is his chapter. We alternated chapters, okay. but I, I do think you're right, Matt. Uh, this does have a lot to do with voices. That our voices ourselves uh, are, are 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 they reflect our experiences. And for Christians, it re- it reflects our experience walking through a difficult world with God, who is Redeemer and Liberator. So we don't want to jettison that stuff when we when we come into church spaces mm. or into dialogue. So, Robert, yeah, I mean, I, I want to kick it over to you. You're the community cultural wealth guy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so this chapter, so theologically, it makes one claim, and then it tries to draw a bridge with, with a principle that is found in CRT. That's what this chapter does, right? Yep. As a conversation point. So... Many, I think one of the, one of the big problems in the U.S. church today is we have little or little or faulty or no theology of ethnicity and culture, right? The value of it, right? That's part of why we're in this big mess. And in Revelation 21, 26, John's, he's saying, okay, when Jesus comes back, makes all things new, 
what's a picture of that? What are some images, right, that we could to help us understand, right, given the limits of just human language? And he says, at that time, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. The doxa, the cultural treasure and wealth of the different ethnic groups of the world will be brought into the new Jerusalem forever. And so first, there's this idea that like our God-given ethnic backgrounds give us treasure, cultural treasure and wealth that not only you know, gives us different types of food and music and art and dance, which is wonderful, but which shapes the lenses through which we see the world, which makes us a distinct parts of the body of Christ, right? So flowing from Jeff's unique, um, very specific, you know, ethnic experiences, my cultural treasure and wealth, your cultural treasure and wealth, everybody's cultural treasure and wealth, right? It gives us unique lenses to understand the problems of the world, to, to be able to kind of understand God and who God is in different ways, right? To come to the text of scripture with good, with good, good hermeneutics, right? <laughs> and, and to be able to bring out di- distinct things for the benefit of the whole body of Christ, right? That's, that's the glory and honor of the nations. Well, CRT has said something similar. <laughs> um, and Tara Yoso framed this idea of community cultural wealth right, in the context of education. And she said, well, students of color historically have been viewed through a cultural deficit perspective. People have said, oh, Latinos, African-Americans, students of color don't succeed in the U.S. education system because their cultures are backwards. They have a deficit. And how do you get them to succeed? Make them like middle-class white students, right? It's mm-hmm. said indirectly and directly, right? She says, no, 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 no. Students of color bring distinct community cultural wealth to their educational experiences. And just because it's distinct doesn't mean that it's absent, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we want to promote educational achievement, start with the community cultural wealth. So in that chapter, chapter one, I bring the two together as a cultural conversation, both for Christians and, and for those who might not be Christian, right, who are trying to figure out, well, how does, what, is, what the heck does Christianity have to do with, with these deep issues of race and justice? Because at the end of the day, my biggest heart is one of evangelism. I want people to know Jesus, right? Because Jesus transformed my life mm-hmm. and gives me life and breath every day, right? And as long as there's this false dichotomy between issues of race and justice and Jesus and the church, it creates a stumbling block. And now a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Yeah, I think one of the more famous examples I keep thinking of, Robert, as you talk about that, are the the Indian schools, you know, mm-hmm. where Native people were taken from their families and put in schools where they essentially colonized the Native out of them. 
right? Punish them for speaking native language and all this kinds of stuff. And the devastation that caused uh, to the native community, those children, their families, and that endures today. And what you're describing is rather than this homogeneity and really, I mean, really what you're describing is, I think when we hear the words white supremacy, we think KKK and hoods and lynchings, and that's a part of this. Mm-hmm. But but supremacy means as well that something is better than something else in norms and shapes and orders and other things are relegated or marginalized as deficient or less helpful. And that's what you're naming here is, is we have to repent of white supremacy and one of the ways we can do that is to see this cultural wealth, have this cultural wealth paradigm. Amen. Yeah. That sounds Christian to me. <laughs> uh, um, well, one, one artifact uh, of white Western culture that I think CRT kind of creates friction with is that we tend to individualize sin, right? So racism then is a problem of the heart. You guys heard this one before? Yeah. Um, And uh, if I was racist, I'd know it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it would be some volitional, intentional animus that I I harbor and stoke and then inflict. Um, And I think that's often how maybe we, we miss... We miss the gifts that CRT wants to bring us because of our our paradigm of sin. So how does CRT then enable us to, to have a new paradigm? How is that understanding of sin deficient? Mm. And before I jump, can I just say this? Too? Yeah. That's Jeff's chapter. But, or we, people say, if I was racist, the Holy Spirit would have sanctified me of it. <laughs> and, he, and the Holy Spirit hasn't. So see, I'm not racist. But Jeff, please... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just lobbed that out there, Robert. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, I, maybe we'll work backwards a little bit. I'll, I'll start in South Africa. When when you look at the um, the what the Dutch Reformed Church wrote in their justifications for apartheid, right? which if your listeners don't know, it's uh, it was a an entire system, a legal system of keeping blacks and whites segregated in South Africa. And it, it, it accrued to many awful uh, racial, racial atrocities, deaths, maimings, disfigurements uh, uh, that, that uh, black South Africans suffered. Um, the justification, in part, says we have nothing against black South Africans. In fact, we should obey Christ's commands to love them. It just doesn't say that we should be with them. That was the justification. That's that's the crux of the justification, that there's no re- requirement to live in society, and we, we can live in a segregated world and still fulfill love. That kind of a, an imagination is deeply problematic. And, and just as a historical example, that kind of segregation becomes deeply problematic because it's not just about someone's convictions or someone's neighborhood. It involves all of what comes together in a society and in, in systems. So socioeconomics was a part of it. And the law was a part of it. CRT helps us understand how the law, in particular, and first, keeps the power structures advantageous for some and disadvantageous for others. So that you can have a really well-meaning heart towards someone 
but how but that heart means nothing for how they live and and how they experience the world that you enjoy yeah and and that that means all kinds of tragedies are happening under our nose while we live very comfortable lives yes you know, one argument against CRT that I, I read online is that CRT divides us up in categories based on race, mm. which is this social construct, right? H- how are we all one in Christ? So um, CRT works against unity, right? Uh, as Christians, at least that's what, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I hear people say. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that notion of how mm-hmm. colorblindness is the solution to racial division? like the racial divide? I'll start, but I really want to hear what Robert has to say. (laughs) You know, uh, colorblindness, both in legal studies and in the the legal realm, but also in theology and and ministry, has led to all kinds of just awful church experiences and experiences in the United States. I'll stick to the church, because I'm a church person, I'm a theologian, and that's what I know. Um, As a person of color uh, who's worked with young adults of color for 20 years and and, uh, listened to the stories of pain of church members of color, um, when we run our churches like color doesn't matter, hear me now, folks, (laughs) you know, you listeners out there, what I hear in response is they're telling me I don't matter. They're telling me my experiences don't matter. They're telling me that the things that I have to bring, the gifts that I have, the stories I have to tell, that they don't matter. Color blindness tells me I don't matter. So, if you're going to tell me I don't matter, and then you want to tell me that we're one, it mm-hmm. just doesn't work for me. That's probably the cleanest way I can explain it, but I'm, I'm curious what Robert would say. Yeah, it makes me think of, again, 1 Corinthians 12, right? It's like, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So if you don't have equal concern for each other, you're going to have division, Right. If you don't give greater part, greater honor to the parts that lack it, like God does, right? So when people try to color blindness, it kind of works like this. Oh, I don't see color. But when you tell me that you're suffering, it doesn't, you're not really suffering. Right? Like, oh, your schools are, no, are still, they're no longer unequal. Like you're just kind of making that up, right? Or, da, 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 or I don't see color. But the structures that are the consequences of racism over the decades unequal access to healthcare and equal public schools and voting rights and all those things, which are a direct, the inequalities there, it's indisputable, you know, result from the legacy of racism, right? Yeah. And if you say, oh, the, the, that legacy doesn't exist anymore, I'm colorblind. You have to, you have division, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 A super succinct, um, Robert and Jeff, I appreciate that. Um, uh, I appreciate how you keep bringing us back to scripture as well, um, <laughs> which is appropriate, you know, as, as we're, you know, we're Christians here and we're talking to Christians. And so you, you just keep bringing us back to uh, scripture and it, it feels so clear, right? And you just say like, well, here's what first Corinthians 12 says that here's what brings about unity, not color blindness, but concern, having concern for one another. So um, I really appreciate that. And the, the other thing I think that I'm noticing about this conversation so far is just that um, there is a real, uh, we have a real problem. I think um, white American Christians um, have a real problem understanding. 
there, there's an individualist consciousness that thinks the only racism that I could or should be responsible for reckoning with and rectifying would be my own personal dislike or hatred or discrimination against, you know, black people or, you know, Latino people or whatever. Um, and there's, I'm just reflecting on how that it's, it's actually a sub Christian ethic mm-hmm. to think that the only thing that I should be responsible for is my own personal, like you reading from first Corinthians 12, Robert is just like, Oh yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's a Christian ethic to be concerned, not just about myself and my own, you know, am I, do I have good feelings towards people of color, but no, do I, do, am I concerned with their actual lives, how it's actually going? For them, right? And so, um, anyway, I just, that's more of a comment than a question. I appreciate you bringing it back around to that. But I I think maybe there is a question in this, in that, like, um, how do you get at this bugaboo of like individualism that, that is so much like the water we swim in that makes us think that colorblindness is a good idea and all of these other things? Like, how do you get at this thing that's so pernicious, but it's, it's so pervasive? Um, in, in the spaces where we try to talk about this stuff. This is totally Jeff's chapter, so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, um, it's, it's a difficult question, Ben, and, and thanks for that. Um, uh, it's like asking, you know, when a child has been raised from, a, a, from baby to adult in an individualist mindset, being told that you're responsible for yourself, that right. your body's is yours to determine and that you don't, you are not your your brother's keeper. Right. Um, then how do you undo that? Well, mm-hmm. being told that for your entire lifetime forms you so deeply that by the time you're an adolescent, you're kind of programmed. So the I, you know, as a as a theology and culture person, I think the best that we can do is to mitigate some of that in our adult lives. But that really the intervention occurs much earlier. Take, for example, liturgical traditions that pray the prayer that you have probably heard many times. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. Mm. Now, if we took that undone part seriously, Mm. there's a lot of stuff that I didn't do. I'm not personally culpable for doing it, but I have left it unaddressed and it affects my brother and sister, my neighbor. And in an individualistic world, we probably would say, you know, there's not much I can do about the stuff that I've left undone, but I want to give this blanket prayer to God for repentance. But really the prayer invites those of us with a communal mindset. Now I got to do what I've left undone once it becomes obvious to me that I've, I've not done it. And so we can mitigate that by, you know, if you're a clergy person listening, to really press into that prayer and think about what is it that we've left undone. Ask your congregation. And I really believe that people with individualist hearts, good hearts, goodwill, will care deeply about what we've left undone if we would just look at it long enough. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. I wonder if I can give an example of this. I, my wife and I, um, so Ben is getting ready to move. And my wife and I were talking about, I'm 47, and I, we were talking about how, like, if Ben were to ask us to help him move, like... It's coming. The kind, <laughs> the kind, the kind of recovery helping a friend move at 47 mm-hmm. is different than the recovery. Like, at 27, it's like, just buy me some pizza, and yeah. my body is yours for 12 hours, right? 
Um, so anyway, I put something up online. Like, what what is the social like socially? What do we assume about when is somebody? This is my thinking. When is somebody too old to mm. you know? Like, what is it? Like, what is it? Like, when you get married? Is it when you hit forty? And a number of my friends said it's not really age, but it's stage. And they said, and then a number of people who aren't wealthy enough to hire movers, this isn't even a question for them. Because how else would they move if they didn't have friends, family, neighbors helping them? What it revealed to me, Jeff, to your point, Mm. is that if you were to ask me, do you hate poor people? (laughs) I'd say no. If you were to ask me, do you, are you all for the supremacy of wealthy rich people? I'd say no. In fact, I'm unaware of any conscious, volitional, intentional bias or prejudice against poor people. But I carry classist frames in my body. So it doesn't even occur to me how somebody who couldn't afford movers, how how that pole would hit them, or that would be a consideration for why you'd ask a 47-year-old broken down man who just needs a nap to help you move. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's understandable, you know, when 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 one cannot feel uh the 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 criticism coming, right? So mm. if I, if I would say you didn't do it, you left it undone. You don't actively hate me, you just don't consider me at all. You can't feel that. So you have to develop Another instinct, which is to, re- to, to receive the story that someone tells you about their pain. Yes. Yes. That's, that's probably the hardest part. We, we talk about listening all the time, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about taking a story in. We can say, I hear you or I have heard you, but we can't say that I will make your concern my concern. Yes. Uh, that, that's really difficult. Christy, yeah. you're, you're about to jump in. Yeah, I just, what, oh, sorry, go for it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. Okay. I was just going to say, like, that's what changed me. Like, I grew up with a lot of privilege, right? Even though, like, I come from an immigrant family and my dad's generation went through a lot of stuff. And I went through some stuff. When I was going through the stuff, I didn't even realize I was going through the stuff. But it was my students, right? When I heard their stories, like, I'll give you an example. Um, there was, imagine 15 years ago at UCLA, undocumented students there struggling to get their education with no financial aid, couldn't work, all these things. And I kind of had a sense for their suffering. But as I heard their stories, it led me to say, oh my gosh, how can I support you? And then they told me, they said, well, we need scholarships. Can you help us raise money? Sure. Mm. They said, we need safe spaces on campus. I said, okay, we can buy like a bucket of pad thai you guys reserve a room and create a safe space for yourself. But I had to listen and be in a relationship right? um, to really listen. And, and that, that's what changed me. And then, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, I do remember. I, exper- I experienced similar things. I didn't even realize it. Though, right? Oh, yeah, this happened to, like, my parents' house or our car. Or I, I was not the stories that I tell in the book. And we were able to have, you know, imagine over the space of one entire academic term, sharing stories. Yeah. I think it's I think it's especially difficult 
to hear the the pain of another to when you're implicated somehow in that pain. Right. Sure. So Matt, your poll, you know, like you, like you have to develop the ability to not immediately get defensive. That's not what I meant. Of course I don't hate poor people, you know, like, and, and we all have to develop that ability. And I'm just, I'm struck right now by how similar that is to just the, the, the way we have to develop that in our interpersonal relationships with people who are very similar to us, like my spouse, right? I've got to develop this ability to listen to her when I make a comment Mm -hmm. that hurts her feelings. I didn't mean to hurt her feelings. I never mean to hurt her feelings. I love her, but I have to develop this ability. And it's very, it's been very hard for me. Um, We were talking about Enneagram stuff as an Enneagram one. I, I need to be blameless, right? I have to make sure that I'm blameless. And so it's very hard for me when she says, Hey, that hurt for me to just go, you're right. I, I'm sorry. That was insensitive of me. And so there, there's this defensiveness. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about this, I guess, I'm in terms of saying, like, I think this is the same kind of ability that we need to cultivate to be able to listen to someone's pain, especially when we're implicated in it, and just realize that apologizing and repenting, like, it's not that bad. It's actually so good. You heard right? it here it's first. It's actually so good. <laughs> CRT breaking, can make better marriages. Breaking, <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> Repentance is not that bad. And and I'll I'll, I'll one-up you on that. Okay. (laughs) What happens in marriage when my trauma and my spouse's trauma intersect? Woo, right? Yep, yep. Then the trauma reenacts itself, notwithstanding good intentions or not, right? And there's a new book that I recommend. This, This would be a great, another person for your podcast, Johnny Ramirez Johnson. Mm-hmm. Fuller wrote, he, he has a book that just came out or it's just coming out called The Power of Love, The Power mm-hmm. of Love. And he talks about this racial dialogue thing from that perspective of like fight or flight and what happens and how do we get over that? And, yeah. and so I, I think you're onto something. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. I mean, my own story of just even hearing you guys talk. Of course, I'm on a podcast with four men, but so I might cry in this moment. I actually was like holding my throat like, oh, gosh, there's a lump there. But as you're talking, I was thinking about my own kids. I have uh, we have six kids. Three of them are adopted. Two of them are Latino and and adopted. Um, they're from Mexico through the foster care system. And recently... Uh, one of my kids was acting 
sad. And basically I was like, hey, sweetheart, what's going on? And she said, um, I feel different mm -hmm. in this family. Mm -hmm. And as, as a mom, I was like, no, baby, no. Like, you're, you're one of us. Like, you have the same last name. And like, the other three grew in my belly, but you grew in my heart. And I have all these things that I say. Um, mm -hmm. But the reality is she's different. Mm -hmm. And for me to be colorblind to that, um, is causing her pain. Mm -hmm. Like I just need to like acknowledge it and name it and and then navigate it. And I don't, I'm just saying I don't know how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. I am a white mama who like has racism ingrained in my heart, and I think my way is the best way. And you're now in my white family. <laughs> and gosh, that's like yeah. I don't. I, I'm not sure. Like where to move from that mm -hmm. other than the first step is for me to say to her, you are different mm -hmm. and different mm -hmm. isn't bad. And so what does it look like to step into those things? Teach me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I don't, I don't think that that's the posture of my heart all the time. And she felt that the other day. Wow. Wow. You all have a amazingly difficult and wondrous journey ahead of you. And it reminds me to, to keep you in my prayers. So I, mm. I appreciate you putting your convictions where, um, your, you know, where your life is. So, um, thanks for walking through that. Yeah. 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 Well guys, I, I so I think what, what's emerging here is that CRT is, is a, is one tool that helps us to listen better to how people experience injustice and evil. And the reason why Christians should care about that is because uh, we're Christians. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's like I think I think an eight year old could understand this mm -hmm. um, in some ways. Um, well, maybe as we a couple more things that I just would love to hear your responses to. There's there's a lot of a lot of uh, I, I'm thinking about people who are. Um, have intuitions that align with our conversation, but then they hear criticisms of CRT and they and they don't know how to respond. And I know your book touches on some of these, which is why I want people to read your book. But I'm wondering if we could pull out some um, some treasures, uh, old and new, from it. Um, one of the criticisms of CRT is that it it has uh, a bankrupt eschatology, right? <laughs> it doesn't have a, a telos or a new creation telos. It focuses on what's wrong with the world, but it doesn't point us towards the good. So it's sub-Christian. Um, and, and then that's used to say, this is why we shouldn't use it. How, how, how do you guys navigate that? How do you think about that? And is, is it true? Is, there, is it true to, is it even fair to evaluate the eschatology of CRT? That's a wonderful question. Um, the, the question of fairness is a huge question. And I think what we try to model in the book overall is how do we approach any academic discipline with fairness? Mm -hmm. What was this discipline designed to do? What is the story that it's trying to tell? And um, how should we feel about that? So I just want to remind your listeners that it wasn't too long ago that psychology itself, all of us who benefit from therapy, psychology itself was so suspect Yes. That an entirely different branch of uh, methodology was born called biblical counseling. 
And no shade to anyone who's a biblical counselor or who benefits from biblical counseling, but it was a direct reaction against the felt secularity of the discipline of psychology. So what we're trying to do in this book is to say, yeah, CRT tells a story about the future. It's not the one that Christians tell. It's not the ones that many of us confess in our doctrinal statements about the return of Jesus Christ to wipe away every tear and to make all things new. That's not the story. And so we don't hold it to that standard, therefore. What it does say, and you know, someone like Derek Bell makes a really, really harsh pronouncement about how people of color, and specifically um, Black Americans, need to prepare themselves for, quote, permanent subordinate status, unquote. Now, that's not necessarily eschatological. Derek Bell was a Christian himself, but um, as we think about life here on earth into the future, he's telling folks, don't believe the lie that equality is going to come to you as a matter of course or as a matter of time, that you can place your faith in the legal system the way that it is, and you'll, you'll see equality one day. Don't believe that because in the process of believing that, you will lose everything. You'll lose your dignity. You'll lose yourself. Um, that's a, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of eschatological uh, it, it, in that it projects into the future the kind of preparedness that we should have. When mm. the Christian story, I think more explicitly for many of us, says Jesus is returning and therefore, you know, fill in the blank. But for me, it's pursue righteousness in this life. Um, and and work toward the kind of future that Jesus promises us. That's that's a that's a different posture, a, a different one that I don't expect of a discipline like CRT. Mm. Mm. I, I, the the language Derek Bell used is evocative of what First Peter two, where Peter says, "As aliens and strangers mm. in the world do this," um, and he's not saying you should seek to not be an alien and stranger. Or you should overcome that. He's saying, like, you will you will not be at home in the world, mm-hmm. right? Which I is what I I think what I hear Derek Bell saying. You're as a black person, you will not be at home in white supremacy. I think there's a thematic resonance there. And if you could imagine, if your listeners could imagine, inviting white Christians into the kind of liminality and alienation that people of color feel, <clears throat> that you would join us as sojourners. Um, and, and there's this phrase in race and ethnic studies called race traders. It's, it's, it's folks who turn their back on all their privilege and comfort in order to join the struggle mm-hmm. for liberation. Yeah. You will feel the alienation that, you know, some percentage of the alienation that the rest of us feel. And um, it's, a, it's a different sojourning community that is uh, not at home in this world. Mm. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of those... We, we started by talking about this, about the, the differences, you know, in, in you know, children, uh, you know, the different cultures, right? Um, it, um, what, what do we call it? The cultural deficit versus... Uh, cultural wealth. Wealth, yeah, there we go. Um, and this is, I think, a great example of the way that, you know, so perhaps, you know, black Americans who have always had this experience of being sojourners, right, in a land that didn't welcome them, maybe they have something to teach us as Christians, right, about what that's like, uh, you know, to maybe maybe we as as white people, I'm saying we, you know, um, as the hosts of this podcast, but like maybe we as white people don't understand that in our bodies in the same way, and maybe we have something to 
actually learn there, you know, um, that, that they have something to teach us about that experience. Yeah. I, I have a quick, just a suggestion for your listeners. I, I think there are some songs that the black church shares with, um, you know, it, particularly hymnody. Um, there are some songs that, for example, are sung in the civil rights movement that you might hear in just an average, you know, church in, in anywhere in, in the country, like an average white church anywhere in the country. But when I sing or listen to one of those hymns or songs, and I remember how, how it sustained communities of color through struggle, then I'm singing or listening to it in a different mode. And I think, you know, if you want to not leave things undone, then just take stock for a second and, and remember that these songs are sung around the world. So think about, for example, um, sing Alleluia to the Lord. Very simple tune. That was the anthem of the umbrella movement in Hong Kong. And knowing that they drew strength from God based on that song makes me sing it differently. And that small imagination shift, a widening, I would say, can be really helpful in getting us to not leave things undone. Hmm. It's maybe the difference between appropriation and appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Guys, uh, there's so much more to talk about uh, in your book. You you order it with uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and there's, uh, there's so much goodness in it. We can't possibly go through it all. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, as you, as you see this book in the world uh, and and you see the re- receptivity or reaction to it, um, what what are what are you hoping this book does? Like what what would be the gift that you hope this scholarship um, gives to the reader? I hope it creates a a bridge of conversation. On the one hand, <clears throat> those who are well aware of the history and policy of racism and in the US, but who think that Christianity is only white Christian nationalism. I hope this book would be able to kind of let them see it like, oh gosh, I I can engage with Jesus and Christianity and oh my gosh, and begin that journey. On the flip side, I hope that the book for the US church can open up conversation just like we had today. It's amazing to me. Every time Jeff and I you know, go into a podcast and talk about the book, the conversations are incredible, right? They all go in the many different directions. So I hope it can be a tool for the U.S. church to begin the complicated work of unraveling all the, 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 the really bad legacy of race and ethnicity, Reclaiming at the same time the cultural treasure and wealth of the U.S. church because it has it too. And then broadening its horizons um, for the revival that, that God is bringing. And this is going to, I'm going to throw into something totally new here. The revival that God is bringing, I, I believe, through the global church. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I, I share that hope as well with Robert, but I, I want to toot Robert's horn because I'm a a longtime missionary to the university world and Robert is doing exactly, you know, I don't want to get him in trouble for what he's doing at UCLA, but um, the way that um, spiritual capital that is theorized by some CRT folks in education, 
the, the importance of spirituality in helping folks navigate racial injustice, mm. folks of color. Yeah. Um, the resource, the asset that spirituality and particularly Christianity has been for folks who are fighting injustice. This is the this this is part of the field of study that folks like Robert are bringing into ethnic studies, which traditionally has not held a lot of space for Christianity in particular and religion in general. So there is a an opportunity for us to tell a new story about the real significance and beauty of people who have suffered for the sake of Jesus um, in the midst of racial injustice as a cornerstone of what it means to be American um, and what it means to learn the American tradition and what it means to learn race and ethnic studies uh, 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 that, that um, we have not had opportunity to talk about before. So as a missionary to the world of ideas, I'm so grateful for folks like Robert who are bringing these perspectives that I would say were deliberately excluded uh, before. Yeah. Yeah, the book again is called Christianity and Critical Race Theory, A Faithful and Constructive Conversation. Robert and Jeff, uh, you've succeeded in writing um, a theologically profound yet rhetorically accessible work of theology um, that helps connect, I think, uh, Christians to the deep needs of our world uh, as, as missionaries. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. You guys, I'm going to email Robert. Yeah. yeah after, and uh, yeah, yeah. and have a little offline conversation because because I have some questions and I don't I don't I really don't know how to move forward. I don't think it's what adopted parents talk about very often. Yeah. Uh, and so I got yeah. I have things to learn, especially adopting across racially, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Robert very kindly offered, you know, like a, to have a conversation with you about that. Yeah. yeah. It's really great. Yeah. I just, I mean, I, one of my reflections, I mean, this is a great interview. These, these guys are um, brilliant. Um, but I, I just want to appreciate again, Christy, uh, your vulnerability yeah. on that podcast to just mm-hmm. sort of like you're, you're doing like we, we talked about like the necessity of, you know, learning to, change course, you know, that's another way of saying repent. Um, and you just, like, you did it just beautifully real time in front mm-hmm. of us. So it's a great example of what we're talking about. Yes. It really yeah. is, Christy. Thanks for creating a safe space to, yeah. to do that. I mean, I know it's a podcast and people are listening, but yeah. like in some ways it's like, this is just the conversation. I'm just looking at you and your faces right. and I'm yeah. like, Ooh, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm noticing stuff in right now. And yeah. so, and yeah. I think our listeners, by and large, are a safe space. I don't think anybody yeah. hate listens to this podcast. No, I don't think so. Boy, <laughs> so. uh, um, that would be a that would be a giant waste of your time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. Hey, real quick, Matt. Uh, mm-hmm. The other day, Paul came home and and he brought six sprites home. Six sprites. Uh, he like he loves soda. Yeah, he gave up Seven Up. <laughs> oh, I said it wrong. <laughs> I got it. I was trying. 
I even wrote it down, y'all. I could I tell wrote that's it down. what was happening. I was like so excited. I was so excited because oh. I wasn't sure if Matt understood what was happening. Oh my god! I know. Gosh. I was trying to surprise him. Oh, well, so good. It was supposed to be he gave seven up. He gave seven but up. But I set it off. <laughs> this is amazing. What's better than a dad joke? Badly told. It's, Christy telling a dad joke and messing it up. That's awesome. amazing, Christy. Oh, my oh goodness. Uh, someday in the future, I'll try again. Um, I, I know we're supposed to end right there, but I I, uh, I, I, I do these um, little posts on my Substack, like uh, white U.S. Christians read scripture, and then I take these arguments people make against things like CRT and apply them to the scriptures as a way of showing like, these, if these arguments are true, we would have to reject a lot of what we see happening in Scripture as good. Right. Yeah. So Acts 6 kept coming to mind as we were talking about listening to voices. You know, Acts 6 is when, is when uh, the widows uh, who aren't from Jerusalem, like the Gentile, some of the more Gentile or outside of Jerusalem widows come and they say, hey, we're not getting a fair shake in the disbursement of food. Um, and then the apostles basically say, all right, well, we'll we'll select six or seven, seven people who will oversee this. And the seven people, like six of them have Greek names. And so what we see is the apostles basically are like, oh, there's this class of people who are being, feel excluded. So we're going to, um, we're going to put people in charge who represent them so that they'll be included. And I just think, I think if if we took the same rhetoric and same logic that we use when when uh, you know black people say hey there's systemic injustice, it, that never would happen. We you know mm-hmm. we, I I can't um, if if I were to respond to this and and appointed people in charge that were just like you you will you will never learn to live with anything but a victim mentality. Yeah, and and I, I just I, I think that I think. I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, effective, but I do think if we can if we can tether these convictions to our story as Christians, then at least if people want to stay racist, they'll have to deconvert. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. I, yeah. Yeah. I think there's something there's something to that. I think that's really important to And it's something different than just saying, "Oh yeah, those people aren't real Christians." But it it is a like, I think it's important to be able to say, mm-hmm. like, the way that you're behaving is, is antichrist, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it, it, it's a, like you're, you're being, an, you're, you're not being serious <laughs> about yeah. following Jesus here. You're just sort of using the the scriptures as a, I don't know, a totem, a, yes. a talisman, you know? So yes. Anyway. All right. Well, all right, y'all. Well, good interview. Christy, good bet, interview. Better good luck joke. next time. No, I liked it. Tell it just like that. I think that's the new running bit. No. Yeah, so always tell it always tell a dad joke a little bit wrong. Yeah. Right. Oh, friends. All right. Well, happy day. Right. Happy day. Listeners, see you next time. Good to have you with us. All right. Peace. Peace be with you. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. 
You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.